0: Hey y'all, from NPR, I'm Sam Sanders. It's been a minute. I want to take you back to this past August and one of my favorite moments of the year. Before impeachment, before conflict with Iran, the war on everyone's mind was over a chicken sandwich. Americans are flooding Popeye's restaurants hoping to get their hands on the new crispy chicken sandwiches. The Popeye's chicken sandwich and the fast food company Battles, it started That was the food story of the year. My year for sure. The sandwiches sold out almost immediately, and just about every fast food chain wanted to fight Popeyes over it. At least online. Roy Wood Jr. was on the case. He's a stand-up comedian and a Daily Show correspondent. His most recent comedy special from Comedy Central is called Roy Wood Jr. No One Loves You. Anyway, a couple months back when the chicken sandwich wars are raging... Roy made a short YouTube series called The Coalition. If you
1: think of chicken sandwiches as drugs, Popeye's chicken sandwich <laughs> is the new drug that has taken over the world. And so what would the other drug dealers do
0: <laughs> to undercut the new dealer? This series does not have the production quality of American Gangster or The Wire. Roy voices all the chicken sandwiches himself, and it looks like it was shot in his kitchen. You can see his hand moving the bags in some scenes, but this thing is really funny. I need answers. How does someone that's not in the coalition get some of the best damn chicken
1: on the block? Burger King. I don't know what's going on in these streets. I've been working on an incredible Whopper all summer.
0: When I talked with Roy Wood Jr. back in November, it was all I could think about. So we began our chat with that. Uh, after the chicken talk, we get into a lot. Roy's background in comedy, how to talk about politics and laugh about politics right now, and a whole lot more. Here's our chat.
1: It was supposed to be one episode. It was. I was just going to do one, and it got some good comments, and then I would lay awake at night. Late and I kept thinking these scenarios. I'm like, it, it started turning into a crime novella, no different than The Wire, where you have sandwiches double-crossing and going over to oh Popeye's side and helping Popeye's. Oh and Lord. by the end of it, we were into Jack in the Box and White Castle <laughs> and Whataburger. I think I used like 14 or 15 different fast food packagings. The only company that had something to say to me on Twitter was Crystal. Because Ugh. they felt like they didn't get enough screen time, and I go, you know, what? That's, fair. that's fine. That's <laughs> fine.
0: What do you think the absurdity of Fried Chicken Sandwich Gate 2019 says about where we are as a culture right now? I keep trying to think about what the, what it says about us, and I can't figure it out. Besides, we're just crazy. I think that
1: it is the ultimate in corporate manipulation and market dominance. Uh, by Popeye's. A lot of places saw a dip, Chick-fil-A included. So it's no different than sneakers and electronics where you create demand by purposefully limiting the supply. You will not tell me that there is not enough chicken out there Mm
0: -hmm. for Popeye's to get it out to all of their dang stores. What I think it says about us as well is like there's this ridiculous nature of like Stan culture. Like it wasn't just... Go get the chicken sandwich if you want the chicken sandwich. It was, no, I stand Chick-fil-A. No, I support Popeyes to the death. No, I support this one. Especially online, this blind allegiance to a brand that just wants your money and
1: mm-hmm. this
0: allegiance to the point where you'll fight with strangers on the Internet over who has a superior chicken sandwich. Mm, like we, I wonder where
1: that comes from.
0: You know, like we're so ready to fight to defend the things that we think make our identity right now. I
1: wonder where that
0: comes from. Where do you think it comes from? Maybe
1: that comes from a political climate where people have become very blindly dedicated to things without even considering analyzing where the other person is coming from. Hmm?
0: Wait, what?
1: (laughs) We weren't this divided before 2016, I don't think. People go, I, I don't really care for Popeye's, but, you know, I like Chick-fil-A. Now it's, if you don't like Chick-fil-A, <laughs> unfollow me right now. Oh, yeah. Your mama didn't raise you right. <laughs> it's like, whoa, why is my mother's upbringing? What is... I talked about eating a
0: Chick-fil-A sandwich on my show once and got hate mail.
1: Oh, yeah. It's the, a sandwich. The company supports the anti-LGBTQ, which, which there's a lot of truth. In that statement, there's a lot of truth. If you follow Chick fil A's money, it leads to some places that aren't necessarily on the right side of a lot of issues. But if you but follow if, the money at every it, store, everybody, you go to. exactly. The mistake Chick fil A made was opening their mouth. <laughs> <laughs> Got to be quiet because if you follow the money in a lot of these places, all y'all would just have to be farmers because your money Literally. pretty much always goes to a terrible place.
0: But, like, what what does it mean to make jokes that resonate with everybody in an environment where everyone is so triggered and so like like you have this situation where people have this blind allegiance to lots of things and will fight you over the pettiest thing because of that blind allegiance and you also have this environment where everyone is triggered all the time like how do you make a joke that works especially about politics in such a climate
1: I think it's harder to make the joke that everyone likes than the joke that is just for the people who like it you know we live in a world of specificity now and If you look at the biggest names in comedy, let's just say in the 80s or 90s, there was a much broader relatability to a Sinbad or a Jeff Foxworthy or a Cosby. And even Eddie Murphy, if you consider him past those first two stand up specials, there was something in there for everyone. Black folks love Jeff Foxworthy. Yeah. I loved him. Because he's Southern. He's warm. That's every white person you knew growing up. Hey, buddy, how you doing? (laughs) You might be a redneck. But when you look at the emergence of all of these cable channels and streamers and more stand-up specials, you have comedians that are a lot more niche and specific that get opportunities that they may not have gotten 15, 20 years ago. So you can be specific and still find your audience.
0: How specific do you want to be, particularly on a show like The Daily Show? I think for The
1: Daily Show, for me, I just look for hypocrisy. I look for hypocrisy no matter where it lies. That's what I try to do. And it's also fun, though, to dig into whether or not everything that we think is a solution is the solution. We're working on a story right now about um, about alternative meats. And, you know, there's the Impossible Whopper, all the plant-based stuff that's going on. There's groups out there that are cloning meat and all of this stuff. And for what the beef industry brings with regards to pollution. If we're just talking greenhouse gas effects off of cow pastures, all right, let's eat this instead of that. Yay, we say that, wait a minute, the plant-based sandwich isn't, it's just as bad for you as It's the so beef. processed. Oh no, you know, like, I'm yeah. still gonna die it helps the earth but is that still bad like you know also
0: it's kind of just like don't make easy stuff hard you could just eat a vegetable yeah that's my thing you could just do that you could just like literally eat a vegetable like to to have to package it and process it and make it look like a thing that you should be eating less of anyway (laughs) come on america
1: yeah but that's what people want man we want something that looks like what we love yeah It's almost like, it's like food role play.
0: (laughs) Dress up like a burger, girl. I'm your little bacon cheeseburger. (laughs) It's really a radish. Food role play. Speaking of mining things for, for hypocrisy, what do you hope a viewer of your work on The Daily Show takes away from a segment you do on something like that? To just think more critically
1: about what's happening. I don't ever believe that I have comedy or I set out to create comedy to change your point of view. I simply want to create comedy that helps you make sure that your point of view is more informed. Do what you want with the information, but just go seek out the information before establishing your opinion. Before you go blindly into the Facebook, Reddit, dark web hole of they're wrong. We're right. Screw that. na 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 -na boo boo Just listen and consider some of the specifics.
0: Okay, time for a break. When we come back, Roy Wood Jr. breaks down his audition process for The Daily Show. Both auditions. BRB. The following message comes from our sponsor, Chipotle. April Wilson, a third generation hog farmer for Chipotle pork supplier Nyman Ranch, is proud to continue her family's
1: legacy year after year, even when facing financial hardships. It takes a lot to farm and to stay in farming and we've gone through several tough situations where it's like, okay, we may not be farming next year and that's okay, but every year it it just, something pulls us through and so it's really great to be the third generation and it's awesome to be able to work with my brothers and help them on their farms and
0: they help me on mine as well. It's tough. It's a hard business to enter, but don't give up because there's there's a way. If there's a will, there's a way. To learn more about how Chipotle wants to help bridge the economic challenges farmers face, go to
1: chipotle.com/farmers.
0: It's Oscar time and NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour has you covered. Grab your popcorn and binge listen to all nine of our episodes covering the best picture nominees. Search now in Spotify for Oscars 2020 from Pop Culture Happy Hour. I heard that you had to audition for The Daily Show twice.
1: Yeah, don't make it seem like it was back to back. It was like... Eight years apart, I I know, the first uh, time. Yeah,
0: yeah, but like, how much was different between the first audition and the second one?
1: Uh, I kind of went into that first audition a little arrogant thinking because I was a comedian and I had a degree in broadcast if that's all I needed. Hmm. But what you need are serious improv skills and the ability to listen Hmm. to your scene partner. And that's some acting class stuff that I hadn't taken the first go round. What was really embarrassing about the first audition was that I left my phone in the room uh huh. So after I auditioned, I had to sit outside the audition room to wait for that person to finish <laughs> auditioning. Then be like, <laughs> I forgot my phone. Yeah, and tiptoe. And that person crushed. I, like, really? I thought I did fine.
0: Who was but that You, person? Don't, know, was that you person? don't know that you
1: did fine until you hear somebody crush. And I was uh, like, oh, I am not getting this job. So you heard the
0: people in there laughing at his jokes. The, her, her hysterically jokes, laughing.
1: And so he walks out. And it's Wyatt Cenac, oh Emmy winner, <laughs> oh yeah, future Daily Show Emmy winner, writer and contributor and correspondent Wyatt Sinek. Uh, And I walk in and get my phone. The laughter stops immediately. I'm oh, like, oh hey, oh. <laughs> yeah, I just left my phone over here. I just tiptoeing. <laughs> Wait, did Wyatt get the job? That you Thank wrote you. Hell for? yeah, he got the job. Hell yeah, he got the job. And you know, it just it wasn't my time. And you, you know, I'm thankful for the time that I had between auditions to go and learn and get better and figure out. Oh, this is how you do this mm-hmm. job. And uh, when Trevor Noah took over, the homie Neil Brennan from Chappelle's show uh, made a recommendation. Okay. And that got me the audition. And thankfully, the other thing that really helped me from a skill set standpoint was for like the past two years, I had been a regular on a number of ESPN shows. Okay, So being a little comedic guest on Sports Nation, and that really helped me understand how to be brief and specific on a joke. And usually with sports, most people don't like comedy in sports. Traditionally, they don't even go together. You're hard-pressed to find any comedians that do really well Mm -hmm. in the sports world. And so politics isn't that different. It's a topic where there aren't a lot of jokes, where a lot of people don't want to laugh. Mm -hmm. But if you can do it with sports, you can do it. I would argue that sports is harder because there's more people to get rubbed the wrong way, from the sponsors to the team to the players every network is scared of any joke that you're going to make because they're in bed with the,
0: with, the, with the leagues. Mm-hmm.
1: So there's only so hard you can go at a
0: player. Yeah, yeah. Was there a joke that you told in that first audition before you were ready or a moment in the audition where you were like, ah, yeah, this is not working out?
1: No, I don't even remember what I auditioned with the first time. Like huh. The first time I remember um, you do a mock segment as if you're talking to John Stewart at the desk. It's called the green screen, where it mm-hmm. you look like your own location mm-hmm. and you're yes, John, that is correct. I am here. Well, John, I don't know what the Republicans are saying. What I do know is that I like spicy chicken sandwiches. <laughs> Those performative notes and you know hitting different tones and intonations, I mm-hmm. just didn't do. Yeah. Where I felt good in the second audition, mm-hmm. You perform a segment that they wrote for you to okay. see if you can perform their writer's material. Mm-hmm. And then you perform a segment that you wrote Oh, to see if your ideology is on par with, you know, The Daily Show. And so my comedic ideology has always been, how can you defend the indefensible? Mm-hmm. And so at the time, there was a black high school student in West Virginia mm-hmm. who had a Confederate flag tattoo. Oh, and that's what he wanted to do. Okay. And this is during the Confederate flag debate that was getting real heated back in 2015, 2016. Mm-hmm. I mean, simpler times. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the basic thesis of my argument was was in defending him was that he's a black person in West Virginia. He's probably the only one. He's not pro-Confederacy. That's camouflage. He's just trying to survive. <laughs> we got to go rescue this kid. <laughs> Matter of fact, I got my camouflage, Trevor. We got to go rescue this kid here. Put on this tattoo, and I pulled out a Confederate flag sticker that I made at Kinko's that morning. Oh my goodness. At FedEx office. It was a black dude at FedEx office making printing up Confederate flags. Was details. everyone like, "Who is this"? Yeah, it was odd. It was very odd. <laughs> the irony is that I turned into one of the Confederate flag proponents. I was
0: like, "Look, I have a right to print flags <laughs> at computers if I you want." You will not step on my right.
1: Yeah, so the joke was figuring out a nonsensical way to defend, you know, everyone's going to have the position of, wow, why, why would you do that? You black, don't you understand your people and the struggle and what the Confederate flag? No. Nah, you did the right thing, young man. You should have got that. You in
0: West Virginia. You need to do, show yeah. that at
1: all times yeah. for safe passage.
0: Yeah. Well, so let's go rescue this kid. When did you know that you were funny? And when did you know that you wanted to be a comic? Because your parents, neither of them were in... The arts or even comedy. Your mother was what, a college administrator? Your father was a civil rights activist? Yeah, civil rights journalist, I prefer to say. Okay.
1: If there's any picture of Dr. King, my father's probably three rows behind him with the tape recorder. Wait,
0: stop. Okay. My
1: father was embedded in a lot of, you know, a lot of race stuff. He was on the front lines of Vietnam covering black, uh, the experience of all black platoons and the racism that they experienced. Huh. Like literally, I have pictures of my father ducking down from sniper fire with a tape recorder, no gun in his hand. <laughs> Just what wow. kind of lunatic? The riots in South Africa and Soweto. My father was there and covered that. Mm. And you know, it was in a couple vehicles that took sniper fire. Um, there was a broadcast network called the National Black Network, which started in the '70s, which was essentially the black news CNN of its time, it was really? the first of its kind. My father was a part of that launch. Okay. My father was one of the first people to loan Don Cornelius some of the money that he used to shoot the pilot for Soul Train. Stop it. Uh, when Don Cornelius was still a police officer, he pulled my father over for running a stop sign. What? And my father thought that Don's voice was very velvet. It was just, you have a nice voice. You should do radio. Here's my card. Call me. What? And that's how Don Cornelius got started in radio. and media. What? Yeah. It's those little moments of chance that my parents were a part of. I, I say that to all. I say all of that to say this. Mm-hmm. So I knew I was funny when I started playing sports because I rode with the bench. And your job on the bench is to heckle the opponent. Uh-huh. Your job is to just talk trash about the other team and just make them feel bad and just literally just attack them and yeah. yell hateful things. Stuff that would be considered bullying now. Yeah. And I knew it was funny because the parents would laugh. <laughs> If you can get the parents to laugh. That's how you know. That's a goal. If the umpire laughs, that's a standing ovation. Okay. If you broke the ump, it's a standing ovation. So you knew then that you had the gift. I was like, all right, this keeps me from getting teased. So we'll keep doing this joke thing for a little while. And then when Comedy Central signed on in the early 90s, that was the first time I really saw stand-up. I saw Sinbad, and that's when I got the first itch to be a comic. I just didn't scratch it until college because... The social currency of being popular is greater than, you know, the fear of rejection. And that's yeah. the first thing with any entertainment genre is that you have to get over fear of rejection. And I just started becoming socially
0: accepted and I couldn't risk erasing all of that Yeah,
1: to tell jokes in front of my classmates.
0: Because well, the majority of your career as a comic is rejection. Like you workshop these jokes... For months, knowing that they're going to bomb until they don't bomb anymore. You audition for gigs all the time, knowing that you won't get them until you get one. It seems like being an actor or a comic means that like, you're preparing for at least half of your career to be told no. But the key is
1: that you're being told no by people you'll never see again. <laughs> Whereas in high school, you're bombing in front of people that you immediately have to yeah. go a sixth period with. Yeah, totally. And that's not... Cool. That's mm-hmm. just not acceptable. But when I got to college, it was a new identity and I didn't care what these people thought. There was only three. When I went to Florida and M, there were only three people from my high school there.
0: And I didn't oh. even talk to them for real for real. We were cordial, but And you were and, and so you were going to Florida from Birmingham, correct? Correct. So, okay, you grew up there. All right. So
1: it was out of state. I'm completely out of state. Whole fish in new pond. So now I can be funny. Now I can be a little silly. Now, yeah, I'll go over to Florida State and do an open mic. Mm-hmm. Cause I don't know any of these students mm-hmm. and no one. And the thing that I think a lot of entertainers forget in the early days is that no matter how much you suck, nobody's going to remember it. No one remembers who they booed at the Apollo. <laughs> That's true. Ask anybody who went to the Apollo and just sat in the crowd and booed somebody. Who was it? Man, I don't know. He just wasn't funny. Yeah, That's probably the greatest gift of the bomb is that, You suck, and then you get to basically abracadabra (laughs) and
0: come back the next week. Okay, one last break. When we come back, Roy talks about how his comedy career and his journalism background intersect. Be right back. Support for NPR comes from Newman's Own Foundation, working to nourish the common good by donating all profits from Newman's Own food products to charitable organizations that seek to make the world a better place. More information is available at newmansownfoundation.org. The world is complicated, but knowing the past can help us understand it so much better. That's where we come in. I'm Randa abdel I'm Ramtin Arablui, and we're the hosts of Throughline. NPR's History Podcast. Every week, we'll dig into forgotten stories from the moments that shaped our world. Throughline from NPR. Listen and subscribe now. You talk about policing. You talk about race. You talk about social justice in your comedy a lot. How much do you think that is coming from you just being a black man in this world today and how much do you think that's coming from your dad and his history and who he was and the civil rights work that he did i feel like what i do is not that different from my father it's just
1: i added a couple punchlines in between you know my dad was definitely about dissecting the black experience and figuring out ways to give people truth so that you at least know that you're not alone in thinking the way you think Mm. And so that's all I try to do with my comedy. Um, and I'd say I'd probably turn that corner 2014, 2015. If you watch a lot of my early stuff from television, you know, mm. you can see the evolution a bit in terms of the analysis of race or just the curiosity of race. And then once you get into the stand-up specials, it's kind of, it's more, it's full-blown. It's just, no, this is what we're talking about. This is the issue
0: and blah, 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 blah. Was it just a natural development or was there a thing where you said, "Nope, it's going to be full of that now? I've always tried to make my comedy
1: reactionary to whatever the tone was of the world at the time. And as the world became more divided, you know, my comedy became more intent on dissecting why this division is here. Why do you hold that ideology? You know, it's just reporting on the climate. Comedy is not that different from journalism. It is journalistic. In its nature, I'm either reporting on my life or mm-hmm. I'm reporting on what's happening around
0: us and what I think about it. Do you think about how your discussion of race is perceived differently for black audiences versus white audiences, and do you does that factor into your preparation and where you're delivering this stuff?
1: yeah I, I don't change material based on who's watching. Okay. I just try to make sure that I craft material that at the minimum lets black people know they're not alone. To me, the perfect joke is a joke that makes a white person go, I didn't know that.
0: Mm.
1: And a black person go, that's what the hell I've been trying to tell you.
0: Yes. Yes.
1: For me. That's, For me too. That's, that's the sweet spot because, and then to have black people and white people in the audience and see white people absorbing something that black people are clapping at or, and vice versa, it's like, yes. There's a connection being made, so even if you still feel the way you feel after the show, you're informed now.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, you know, but at the end of the day, it has to be funny. If I don't make it funny, it's just preaching, and preaching ain't worth the two drink minimum. You can go to church for free. Get yelled <laughs> at.
0: Yeah. At least church don't have a cover charge. I mean, they pass a tray around, but and around and around <laughs> and around. Oh my God. I want to talk about this new project I've heard you've been working on, and I want to talk about the impetus for the project. Um, are you still working on this show about two parole officers? Yes, yes,
1: yes, yes. Talk about yeah, it. What is Jeff that Cole, project? Jeff
0: Cobb Probation. So when I was
1: 19, I got arrested for stealing blue jeans when I was in college, and that was the impetus for me starting to do stand-up because I thought that, all right, I'm gonna go to prison. So before I go to prison, let me do everything I ever wanted to do. And comedy was on the list. Mm-hmm. And I end up getting probation instead of jail time.
0: The judge was nice? Yeah, just lucky. Huh. How much had you stolen? I think
1: $400, $500 worth of jeans.
0: What kind of it was jeans? A, it was, oh, is, was it like Jabot nah, era? This
1: was Tommy. This is Hilfiger. Oh, okay. This is 98. Okay, okay. So I mean, $500 is like three pairs, <laughs> uh, it's not a lot. You know, like, it's not like I wasn't a blue jean kingpin. I didn't have a truck in a back alley. Um, And so ultimately, I got a probation officer who allowed me to travel, which was essentially against their policy. But Mm -hmm. he identified that me doing stand-up was something constructive that allowed me to grow creatively. And if you're growing creatively, then that means you have an opportunity to find your worth and purpose in this world. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: It's something that always stuck with me was how many people that are in the system that don't get that leniency, that don't get an opportunity to grow. Because, you know, you're judged by a jury of 12 when mm-hmm. you commit the crime. But once you're found guilty, it's generally one person that holds Lord over you. And it's mm-hmm. either a judge or a prosecutor or your probation officer. And that jurisdiction changes from week to week, you know, depending on what's going on and how much hot water you've gotten yourself in. The other thing is that in this country, more people are on probation than in prison. Hmm. For all of the prison reform that we talk about and that needs to happen, there is an entire wealth of people that are being monitored. And that monitoring system is part of what sets up the recidivism and keeping a revolving door of the prison pipeline fit, you know, mm-hmm. and really taking time to examine the different factors that go into how those things play I just feel like it would be a fun thing to, to make some jokes about. Yeah. So that's what I want to delve into.
0: Well, this So like it's going to be two parole officers, kind of like a buddy cop vibe, but parole officers? Yeah,
1: buddy comedy, but it's just probation officers who are deciding how to help clients on any particular week. And these are real cases. There are people that are on probation who have to get a job mm-hmm. to not be in violation of your probation. Mm-hmm. So you have a car. Your car gets you to your job. Your car breaks down, but you have an ankle bracelet and you're on house arrest, which means you have to get clearance to take your car to the car repair shop or get somebody to do it for
0: you. So you got to call meantime, the officer for all this stuff.
1: Or you have to go in front of a judge to get a grievance to oh, get wow. clearance to go to get your car fixed. In the yeah. meantime, you're missing work. Your boss gets upset. You get fired. And if you don't find another job, now you're in violation. But how do you get to the courthouse and to get your car fixed? How do you even get to work if you live in a city where transportation is trash? And so, there are a lot of hurdles and a lot of weird things that happen to people. But at the end of the day, it's got to be funny. So, that's why I was working with Aaron Magruder because he knows how to make edgy stuff. Boondocks funny. Aaron
0: Magruder. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. I'm and ready so, for it.
1: I'm that, ready for it. it's just an interesting world, man. And I'm thankful to Comedy Central for even having some foresight to even let something
0: like that even be considered to be made because it's not normal. Going back to your father, the civil rights activist. Uh, if I recall correctly, he passed away before you became a comic. Oh, yeah, way before. I was 16 years old okay. when he died. What do you th- think he—well, one, do you think he expected this career path for you at all before he passed? No, I don't think he expected this career.
1: Um, I didn't even want to be a journalist before he died. But I think once my comedy became more socially aware and analytical of the world, I think my pops would have been on board. But I think early on, I don't think he would have been— okay crazy about it he'd have been okay that i was
0: feeding myself yeah yeah you know? yeah what joke of yours do you think would give him the biggest laugh
1: <laughs> um if you get rid of the confederate flag how are you gonna know who the dangerous white people are <laughs> that does
0: sound like the kind of joke that would make a civil rights activist laugh
1: yeah you're like, you know what you're right we do need that
0: flag <laughs> <laughs> keep it around i love it It has been a delight to talk with you. Well, thank you. Thanks again to Roy Wood Jr. You can catch him all the time on The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. Also, his video series all about chicken sandwich fighting is called The Coalition. It's on YouTube. It's very funny. Watch it. And his latest stand-up special came out last year. It's called Roy Wood Jr. No One Loves You. All right, listeners, Till next time, I'm Sam Sanders. Thank you for listening. We will talk soon.